you pray with me? Father in heaven, your faithfulness is great. You are a great father. You have given us a great savior. Lord, you have given us your spirit to hold fast to that great savior. And Lord, we pray now as we, we have your word announced and proclaimed and heralded, as we hear and listen, I pray that your spirit would do his miraculous work to turn our attention and open our ears to hear the voice of our good shepherd who has already died for our sins. I pray that you would do that in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated? If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. If you did get the email or if you have one of the um, bulletins, uh, it will say that we're going to verse 15. But that was a little too optimistic. We'll stop at verse 12 today. So Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 7. Galatians 5, verse 7. Continuing our walk through um, Galatians. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 7. We're going to read to verse 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach per- cir- uh, circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Thus far God's word. Pretty strong words. <laughs> We're, uh, Paul has already used some pretty strong words in the book of Galatians, and this, this might be the cap here. Way to go, Paul. Now we're all going to have to answer questions about, about this from our children, about what this means. He's using very strong words. And one of the questions that Paul is asking and answering, and that we ought to be asking and answering, is when is restriction actually freedom? When is restricting activity and restricting teaching and being stern about this actually a grace and a mercy and a freedom? You'll remember that there is a lot of teachers coming into Galatia and they're teaching new teachings, extra teachings, how to bonus up, how to level up your Christianity, to do better, to be a better heir, to be more of an heir, to have more access to God, to have unlock more of God's blessings, new teachings. And, and these people were we're thinking that they were giving gifts to these Galatians. And Paul is saying, you aren't giving them gifts. You are hindering them. You're making life harder in all of your promises of making life better, making Christianity better. You're actually making it harder. And so he offers a very stern warning, a restriction to not teach anything extra than other than what the Word of God says. Because you are actually restricting people. You are making their walk harder. First point that I think we can see or ought to see in this passage is this. First point is endurance running requires God's children to throw off every teaching that is not actually from His holy word. Endurance running, it requires God's children to throw off every teaching that's not actually from his holy word. We can see this in verses 7 and 8. I hope you can see this with me. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Stop there. One of Paul's favorite metaphors for the life of a Christian was running a race, an endurance race. Not a sprint, but an endurance race. And an endurance race has a goal. It has a finish line. For every Christian, the finish line is the same. Seeing Christ face to face. But every Christian, for every Christian, the race will not be the same length. We're not running to achieve a certain distance. We're not running to achieve certain mile markers or certain goals along the way. Running simply means we continue to live as we were designed to until the end. And what is it? How is it that we were designed to live? I'm sure some children can answer this question. What is the chief aim of man? Why were we created? What does running look like? Westminster Catechism's first question and answer summarizes this in a lovely way. The chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And this glorifying and enjoying God is what Paul means by running. The endurance part, the the distance part is, for how long? Forever. Forever. Now, in one sense, it is forever. In another sense, it's not. In in another sense, it is, is not forever. In one sense, it's forever because we speak of the race as glorifying God in this life, glorifying and enjoying God in this life, making that our focus, to know God, to know the relationship with God that Christ has purchased for us in this life. Now, and this means, for now, enjoying and glorifying God in a world that's at war with God, a world that hates God and hates His Word. A God, uh, sorry, a world uh, which will worship ABC, anything but Christ, and will celebrate treating you anyone or anything as Lord except Christ. It'll celebrate serving or slavery to anything other than Christ. Slavery to sex or money or fame or pleasure or independence or career or being noticed or being liked or popular or stability or comfort. Any of these things, this world would say, be a slave to any of those things. We'll celebrate that except not belonging to Christ. And so for now, we live in a world of darkness while belonging to the kingdom of light. And Paul would not have us forget how we ended up in the kingdom of heaven. We were not born into it. How, we're, how did we get there? Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Paul would remind us that we were called to this race. We were called to this life, to this kingdom. It means we were called out of something. We were called out of darkness. We were part of the kingdom of darkness members of it, citizens of it, enemies of God in identity, in activity, and in our heart's desires, enemies of God in practice, and also by God's own judgment. But we were called out of darkness into marvelous light, called out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred, Paul will say in Colossians chapter 1, transferred into the kingdom of His glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can read of this in Colossians 1 verse 9. 
And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk or run in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good and good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, there it is, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We'll stop reading Colossians there. Paul has already said in Galatians, but here we have it in other words in Colossians. There was one son of Abraham, one man naturally a citizen of the kingdom of light, one man a natural citizen of the kingdom of heaven, one man naturally and essentially a part of the kingdom of God, one heir, one singular heir, one man qualified and fit for the kingdom of heaven, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see how he has, he has qualified us. We have the Olympics not too far away, and we have athletes who have been trying to qualify for the Olympics. And we see here that if we are in the kingdom of heaven, we did not qualify for that. He qualified us. We enter the kingdom of heaven. We enter this race, this living as children of God by his qualifications. He took our qualifications for hell, and he was damned for them on the cross. And now we walk as beloved sons and daughters, as the citizens of his kingdom, while in a world, in a kingdom that hates him and therefore hates us. And how does a person receive Christ's qualification for that kingdom? Does everybody get Christ's qualifications for that kingdom? And Paul reminds us here that a person is called. And they hear the call and they believe it. And what is the call? The call is the gospel. The good news of what Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago. The call is hearing the gospel outwardly. You've all now heard the gospel outwardly. Some of you hundreds and thousands of times. Some of you just a few. Maybe even one the call is hearing the gospel of what Christ did for you, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And then inwardly, the Holy Spirit gives you ears to hear it, to a heart to love it, and faith to believe it and trust it and treasure the gospel. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd and he calls his sheep with his voice. And his voice is the gospel. And his sheep hear him and they follow him. That is, they hear. They actually hear the gospel and believe it. Others hear it too, but they don't really hear it. But his sheep, they recognize the gospel as the very word, as the very call of God out of darkness. Out of walking as an enemy of God and to be a person who's now a son or daughter of God. Because Christ has already given us his qualifications for that position. And so now, all that's summarized in that word call. 
So now we are to walk or run as redeemed and beloved children, to glorify and enjoy God. For however many years the Lord gives us in this world of trouble, and then eternally, forever in a redeemed world. And the question is not how far will Derek run as a Christian, but will he continue to run to glorify and enjoy God, to enjoy Christ's relationship with God? Will he do this till the end of his life and then forever? And that is why, brothers and sisters, Christian funerals are bittersweet. No matter how old the believer who has died is, he made it. She did it. She ran. She walked as a child of God until the end. It's not how far she ran. No, at the end of her life, long or short, was she enjoying the relationship with God that Christ bought for her with his blood? Oh, she confessed and trusted the gospel call of Christ to the end. And that is the goal. Because she is now living, running, walking in the presence of God as his daughter. She's glorifying and enjoying God, and she will so forever. And the Galatians were running well, Paul says. They heard the gospel, and they were called by it. They responded to the call of the gospel by faith. They believed it, and they trusted in the gospel of Jesus. And they were living lives, enjoying God as as God's heirs, as his children. They were making their goal to live holy lives as children. Not to earn that position, but to enjoy the position. Christ already earned it. To live in that position rather than as enemies or slaves. And, And whenever they would fall into sin, they'd repent and trust that Christ forgave them and freed them from that sin. And they kept running, living as heirs of the one who called them. But then someone stepped in with a new persuasion, Paul says. New words about God to follow. New teachings to pay attention to. New commands to being a child of God. New practices to become or stay or excel at being God's children. New qualifications to add to Christ's qualifications for God to treat you and embrace you as a child. But Paul says... This persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, these aren't Christ's words. They're not the word of God. They're not from the mouth of the God who gave you the gospel. So I'll repeat that point. Endurance running requires God's children to throw off every teaching that's not actually from his holy word. This is a race and it's an endurance race where we live trusting in God's promises and obeying His commands, trusting that Christ has given us the Holy Spirit to do so. And so since it is an endurance race, the most foolish thing to do is to add more promises to trust or more commands to obey. Christ says that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. That means His promises are good and His commands are the commands that we were built to obey. They are fitting with our design. They're not commands to rob us of life, but they actually define what freedom and life actually are. And so an endurance runner is outfitted, perhaps with sunglasses or a, a light shirt or a light hat, 
Uh, perhaps a water bottle to quench thirst, perhaps high-tech running shoes, light shorts. All of these things technically add some weight, wouldn't they? But they actually are to make the race lighter, easier. And that means that any commands like do this and God will be pleased must come directly from the same place you got the gospel, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, from the Word of God. Any other commands or instructions, or advice, or guidance in God's name must be very soundly rejected. And it must be cast off as burdens which will make endurance less likely. We need to think of these ideas and teachings the same way that an endurance runner would consider a man walking up to them in the middle of the race and offering them a bowling ball. This is for you. Don't you want it? The runner is not looking in the race rule book to see if this is permitted. Can I carry a bowling ball? No. The question is, was this part of the race kit given to me by the man who died for me? If not, thanks but no thanks. So dear Christian, a, a, a teaching claiming, a teacher claiming that their teaching comes from the Bible simply because some of the words are in the Bible that's not enough. A teacher claiming to be a Christian teacher, that's, that's not enough. Because the Galatian false teachers, where do they get their teaching? They said they got it from the Bible. Circumcision and food and clothing laws were, were before Christ required of the people who were waiting for the Messiah. This is the outfit that you wore. This is, the, this, this is what was fitting for people who were waiting for the Messiah. This is causing them to endure in waiting for the Messiah. But the Bible itself said they were temporary and only helpful for endurance for those people who were waiting for the Messiah to appear. And now that the Messiah came, those commands get in the way of endurance. Think of it this way. To be outfitted with a parka and snowshoes is actually heavier, but it would be helpful for the portion of the race that is in winter through deep snow. But it's no longer helpful, but actually going to hurt your endurance to wear those now that winter's over and you're running on smooth pavement in the heat of the summer sun. And so it is by God's providence that these first false teachers that the church has to combat are actually bringing teaching that they claim is from God's word. And they can kind of use some some of the words of God to, to make these claims. We need to reject all rules about God, all promises about God, unless the Bible itself teaches those things. Not merely if you can use the Bible to teach those things. The internet and Christian books stores are filled with people who are essentially running up to you as you're running, as you're racing, and offering you new baggage to carry in the endurance race. And none of them are acting as if they're going to tell you, this is going to make you less likely to endure. The promise is always, this is going to make the race better. Always. Here's the key to unlocking the race. It's going to be better. New promises to trust. That the, God, that the Bible doesn't promise to all God's children. New instructions or commands that the Bible doesn't command of all God's children. New ways to connect with God. New keys to unlocking the gospel or the Bible, which the church has never had before. Which would mean that 
that Christ didn't outfit his beloved runners for 2,000 years with the right instructions. But the church is, is also mercifully filled with people who will come alongside you as you are running to remind you of the eternal, unchanging gospel promises that you are in danger of forgetting. The promises which Christians have been trusting for 2,000 years. And who will also call you to repent when you are not running as God's child, when you're running in the wrong direction. But running as a stranger, as an enemy, when you become entangled in sin or false teaching, which is ensnaring you and threatening your joy and your endurance and the knowledge of the truth, who will call you to repent of pride, to throw off that weighted vest of sexual sin, to empty your pockets of sinful anger, to drop the backpack of laziness and jealousy. And these dear Christians won't just quote Scripture. They'll be able to show you that Scripture itself gives you this warning, this encouragement, these promises from God, from Christ. They will persuade you with the words of the Savior who called you with his gospel and purchased you with his blood and who qualified you to be a citizen of his eternal kingdom. So don't be persuaded by anything other than the very words of the one who died for your sin, his eternal words that he gave to all his dear children once for all when he came. Point two, graciously correct and comfort the harassed. See this in 9 and 10. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Stop there. Did you notice how Paul describes those who are caught up in this extra doctrine, this new teaching, this new key to unlocking more of God? He calls them people who are being troubled. Now, he has had some very strong words for this church or group of churches. Very strong and stern words. He said that they've been bewitched, remember? He's called them foolish. But in all of this, there's been an undertone of affection and love. New teaching, false teaching, extra teaching, new commands, new principles, new ideas, new practices, new promises. All of these, in Paul's word, are harassment. They're trouble. Christ's desire is that these dear, adopted, redeemed, blood-bought children would be free to run unhindered, unharassed, without people constantly adding to their burden. And as we saw last week, this isn't just about being right. Well, of course it is good to get doctrine and teaching about the Lord right. But the goal is not just to be right. The goal is that God would be glorified and the church would be unhindered in her running. That her course would not be harder than it need be. That Christ's promises for her would be clear and plainly known and trusted. And that Christ's commands would be clear and plainly known and embraced. And so I think you can see in this passage, it is important to discern between those being troubled with extra teaching and those who are troubling the church with extra teaching. 
The sheep of Christ can for a time be caught up in confusing extra teaching. They might be attracted to it and even hold to it for a time. But I want you to notice the words of Paul here in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. He has confidence. Confidence that the sheep of Christ will, after being corrected, after having the word of God applied to show, hey, this is not from the age-old gospel, they will turn and eventually see this correction as a comfort rather than as an offense. Put it differently. There's, different, there's a difference between runners who have bought the bowling ball backpacks in the race and the people selling the bowling ball backpacks. Eventually, a person who does belong to Christ and whose goal is to know and glorify and enjoy God forever, who has received by Christ by faith and has received Christ's relationship to God, eventually the Word of God will bring that person to come to their senses. And so it is Paul's confidence that the Galatian church members would respond. But his confidence is in the Lord. His confidence is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is weak. And so clearly was Peter. And so are the Galatians. And so his confidence is not in himself or in them. His confidence is in the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and his power to conform the heart of a saint to trust only the promises that God has made to all His people and follow only the commands that God has given to all His people. This is a promise that Christ made to the Father and the reason He sent the Spirit to keep this promise. I will hold my sheep. They will keep my word. They will trust my gospel. Even if for a time they are, they are taken aside by new ideas, they can be turned by my word. But not all are turned. Not all will see this as a loosing of bonds. Some will see it as robbery and restrictive. And that brings us to our next point. Humbly and without partiality cut off the harassers. Let's read 10 to 12. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. We'll stop there. So the Galatian false teachers, they took something from the Bible, kind of. They took it out of context. They changed its meaning. And they added it as an additional command. The main command that they were adding was male circumcision. Paul had already warned the believers that if they accepted this as a way to follow God, as some, a way to please God, or to show that you belong to God, if they accepted this, they'd be cut off from Christ. You can see the euphemism there, right? There's a play on words there. Now he applies it to the false teachers, the ones bringing new teaching, bonus teaching, extra teaching. These people aren't just bringing something extra. Paul is saying, you're harassing the church. The church didn't see it as harassment, nor did these false teachers think it as harassment. But Paul calls it what it is. New teaching is harassment. He says they ought to be punished and cut off. It's pretty mean, Paul. No, it's pretty cruel to do nothing about it. 
you do need to tell the difference between confused and immature and harassed and troubled sheep. You need to tell the difference between those troubled sheep and the wolves who are troubling them. Especially when the wolves are wearing sheep's clothing. Part of the work of the church is to diligently work with the, with the gospel consistently so that the sheep's clothing would be removed from the wolves. So that they can't walk around the church and say, no, same, same, we're the same. Same gospel, but I have something better and new to teach you. Teach and warn patiently. No extra additional teaching. No new promises. No new commands are allowed to be taught in your church. And if that's not heeded, make sure the sheep know that this guy or gal is not one of the sheep. They should treat him or her as not fellowship, but as a person who needs to be evangelized. And Paul is saying, I wish they'd do it themselves. I wish they'd cut themselves off from the church. Best case is when you teach and cling to the gospel so clearly and repeatedly, a false teacher is going to admit, going to be so upset and admit you're not worshiping the same God, not preaching the same gospel. They don't always. Often they will stay with their new teaching and claim that they're teaching the same gospel. And Paul's instruction is to cut them, to excommunicate those who hold and share and will not stop false teaching. Notice he says, whoever he is. Notice that? Whoever he is. Do it without partiality. Even, it's the most ho- even if it's the most holy and generous and hospitable person in the church. Even if it's a former missionary, even if it's a lifelong pastor, even if it's a family member, even if it's the person clinging to and sharing these ideas, even if it's a a teacher in the church, or if the person says, no, 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 I'm not a teacher, I'm not a leader, I'm not a pastor, I'm just sharing ideas. He says, whoever it is, warn them, and if they keep bringing that teaching you have to say they're no longer church members. Now, that doesn't mean you're mean to them or unkind to them. It means you treat them as neighbors or or family members or acquaintances who need to be evangelized. The Bible has never said you treat non-Christians worse. You just don't treat them like Christians. You treat them as people who need to be evangelized. You don't speak of our Lord. You speak of my Lord. You don't seek Christian advice from them. You're praying for their salvation. Now, this can seem very restrictive. We have no new teaching. And it can also seem hard. But the sheep of Christ will certainly be harassed from outside the church. We can count on that. We can count on the the sheep of Christ being harassed from outside the church. But a church which loves the Lord and loves his dear sheep cannot permit this harassment to come from within the church. Cannot permit those harassing with new teachings to think that they're not just harassing, they're, you know, they're, they're doing kind things. We cannot permit people to lay extra burdens on other people, whether those Extra burdens are new commands or principles or practices, new ways to access God 
or whether they are new promises to believe. That's not kind. Harassment will come from outside, and we're not to permit it to make following Christ harder inside the church. Our fourth point, last point is this. Guard the offensively pure gospel. We'll find this in verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Stop there. The gospel is offensive. Its pureness is what it makes it offensive. Now, what do we mean by purity? It means nothing added. And the gospel is that Christ alone, purely Christ, earned your salvation. That you stand before God purely on Christ's qualifications. That His life alone was worthy. That His death was on its own sufficient to pay your debt to God. And that you can add nothing to it. Now, this is offensive to those seeking to teach new ways to unlock blessings from Christ. You're saying, I, I got nothing more to offer? Yeah, that's what we're saying. Anything you add would be a burden. Any new teaching you would, be, would, be, would give would not be an enhancement, but would take away. It's offensive to people who think they have something to offer God and that Jesus just fills in the gaps that they might have. You know, Jesus just tops up our efforts so it's offensive because of its purity. Either you stand before God purely on Christ's merits and efforts and live, or you stand before him on your own efforts and merits and will be damned in hell forever. And so the gospel is offensive to the liberals and to the conservatives, to the left and to the right. You can add nothing. There's nothing in you, no even potential, which commends you to God. Nothing. Only, 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 only Christ. And so by pure gospel here, it's not suggesting that only perfect people can teach or preach or help you learn about the gospel. Even the youngest Christian can be helpful in helping you cling to the pure gospel. It means those who agree that only what Christ, uh, with only what Christ teaches in the Bible, nothing added, is what we believe. That's what's meant by purity, and it's offensive. And those who agree that only what God requires us to believe in His Word was what we will require people to believe. And in order to guard the gospel, we dig more and more and more into the Word of God to understand it more and more, not to discover new gospels, not to discover new tricks to unlocking things from God, because there are none. The door is wide open, and the door is Christ. But studying more and more in Scripture, theology of Scripture, we will better and better be equipped to cling to and teach and delight in the gospel which alone can save so that we won't be susceptible to fancy new teachings claiming to be from scripture 
Because we've already seen how that part of Scripture all points sweetly to the finished work of Christ. All Scripture points to that same gospel. And so when somebody takes that part of the Word of God and tries to use it to see, no, no, there's more, we already know how it points to and is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does teaching matter so much that it would require a person to be excommunicated? Now, I can see how abuse would be. Well, that person's abusive. We've got we to protect people from him or, or wicked living. But why teaching? Why is it that teaching is enough to get these guys cut off or circumcised from the church, to use Paul's pretty serious analogy? Not every disagreement is a matter of false teaching. But why false teaching might be a disagreement, why, why it might be enough to get somebody kicked out of the church is easier to understand if you remember how a person is saved. We aren't saved by works. We are saved by the actions of Christ 2,000 years ago and through faith in the gospel. These things that Christ accomplished by faith in them, they become ours. Faith in the promises of what God has done in Christ's death and resurrection. And so, messing with what people believe is potentially lethal. It is potentially messing with the gospel that they believe in. And it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. So what you believe about Christ matters. Because we're saved through faith. Now, a person's faith can be immature or weak, can be a little confused, it can be a lot confused. It can have more or less details. The thief on the cross didn't know very much. But his faith was in Christ alone. But what a person believes, and therefore what a person teaches people to believe, it matters. Because we're not saved by works, but through faith, in what Christ did 2,000 years ago. And so, dear church, dear Karina, dear Earl, do not be entertained with new ideas. Don't pay attention to people bringing you new or better ways to unlock blessings from God. Do not look to what you can do or have done. Look only to Christ. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. So run, freely run, gladly run. Live as an heir of God, trusting in all the promises and only the promises that he gave his church 2,000 years ago, which promises he has not taken back, in which the church has never needed God to add to. Run as his children no longer as enemies or strangers, and look only to his word to plainly describe to you what does it mean to run as an heir. Christ has set you free from your debt to God, from your slavery to sin, from the punishment you deserved, because he carried that load for you on the cross, and he took it to the grave, and when he rose, he left it there. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have given us such a great and complete salvation, fully and finally and only in the work of Christ 2,000 years ago. And we confess that we are often bored with it or unsatisfied with it. We're worried that it's not enough, and so we are sometimes glad victims of people bringing ways to supplement it or add to it. And Lord, I pray that we would see those things for what they are. Hindrances, burdens, bowling balls in our backpacks. And that we would trust in the finished work and word of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us that endurance. And Lord, we have confidence you will, not because we will endure, but because your spirit is within us. And he tunes our hearts to sing your grace. And he gives us ears to hear your corrections from your word and to love them. He gives us ears to hear your promises and comforts from your word and be comforted by them. Lord, we are very prone to wander, but we are glad that we have your son as our savior and the spirit who collects us and keeps bringing us back to him. We pray that you would do these things in us in Jesus' name until we see you face to face and then forevermore. Amen.